So um, there must be something there for you to enjoy. Mm. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast. Let us know if you want to answer. If... <laughs> it's going well. <laughs> I can't speak today. <laughs> okay. Let's talk diaphragm. Let's talk diaphragm. Okay. So um, the diaphragm has a complete mind of its own. It doesn't behave in any way that it should. And uh, it's a, a it's an animal, basically. You didn't tell me you were going to say this. No, because it's all untrue. No, I've absolutely <laughs> no idea where you're going with it. This is a voice a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. This is a voice. Hello and welcome to This is a Voice. The podcast where we get vocal about voice. And this is episode three, series three, and we're calling it The The Breath. Breath. Yes, we're doing a whole podcast on breathing. And the reason we're doing it is that we are three months into the latest run of our accreditation programme, And we've been talking about breathing in all its formats, and there have been some amazing questions coming up from the accreditees. And not just the breath itself. In a way, that's why we kind of played with the whole idea, because there's a sort of holy grail, isn't there, where we do it in capital letters. Yep. Um, And all the things that impact on breath flow, they're really important considerations. And those are some of the things we've been talking about, about pressure and flow and other stuff in our accreditation programme. So this, these are some of the questions that we are hoping to answer today in the podcast. And I uh, hope you have several hours because there's quite a lot of them. Uh, why do we need breath for singing? Breathing for phrases versus breathing for life energy. Let's talk diaphragm. How do we breathe in abdominal release or rib raising, which is best? How do we control flow? And do we even need to? Why active and passive SOVT might help build the relationship between pressure and flow so it can happen more intuitively. Why the timing of your in-breath is important. MDs, pay attention. I'll buy that. Uh, Why the pitch you're singing might make a difference and obviously why loudness might make a difference. And why our mantra, one size doesn't fit all, really does fit all of these questions. And as a final token thing, breath as emotion. That's going to be fun. Mm. Okay, should we start? Yes. Okay. I mean, oh, what and are by we the doing? Way... Are we riffing around these subjects or are we doing them in order? What's the plan? Oh, no, we don't. We, do we ever do anything in order? No, we riff. Um, I do want to just say that we record this a few days before it goes out and today is National Teachers Day. So hello to all the teachers. Hurrah for me. Yeah, and me. Yeah. No, you're a vocal coach. I'm still a teacher. Vocal coaches are still teachers. Okay, all right. No, I can still do teaching. Uh, So, first question. Um, To the singing teacher, this will seem very obvious, or the voice trainer. Why do we need breath for singing? I can remember working with um, one of my singers who's a lovely cabaret singer. And, you know, maybe six months into us training together, we were working in a masterclass. And I said, look, you you know, you need more breath. You need more airflow. And she said to me, yeah, but I've still got air in my body. I've still got air in my lungs. Why do I need to take more in? 
Mm. Boing! Mm -hmm. That was such a realisation for me. Because, in fact, what happened was that sometimes her sound quality was pressed. She'd get through the phrase okay. She could sing the notes. But there was that sense of pressure. And for some reason, I had not explained that what we need, if we're going to keep the vocal folds rolling, because the vocal folds only vibrate in response to the breath. Vocal folds are clever. They can close. That It's a muscular action that makes them close. But no vocal fold muscles twitch at, what have we got, you know, uh, even um, 200 times a second. No muscles twitch that fast in the body. So uh, if we're wanting to sing A below middle C, which is around about 220 vibrations per second, it's actually happening in response to the breath. So it's the breath that keeps the vocal folds rolling in vibration. It's the breath passing through a narrow space, isn't it? And that's where the Bernoulli principle Absolutely. comes in. Absolutely. Bernoulli is the beginning of all of that. And of yeah. course, there's, there's more there's also. More. But so what we needed to do in that particular situation was to encourage her to breathe earlier and to really sort of take a slightly larger breath and to feel that flow generating the sound. And what was so nice about it, from what I remember, is that it really warmed the sound up. And then there's another corollary to that for lots of people who maybe are teaching beginner singers, which is they think they've got to use up all their breath before they take the next one. Hmm. No, you don't. You can let go, you can go back to your residual air level, and then you can replenish for the next phrase. Oh, there's so many places we can go with this. Mm. Um, I just want to talk about breathing for phrases versus breathing for life energy. And that was my sentence, because this sort of ties in with the story. It does link with the story really nicely. Um, there's a very interesting one, which is, uh, I think there's a bit of a myth, which is sort of what Gillian was saying. You take in a breath, and then you use it for your singing. And if you've got a really, really long phrase, you want to eke it out. You want to just feed a tiny little stream, you know, very fine-tune your breathing. And then you wonder why things start to get a little bit shaky, because you've still got breath left in your body, very much as this person was saying. Mm. And part of the issue is that that breath in your body, first of all, you are using it so that it's coming out, and therefore you're not holding it, as it were. We'll talk about that later. But the main thing is that the breath in your body, its main function is to give you life energy. So it's the oxygen exchange. And you know, the, the breath and to create glucose. And therefore to feed your muscles while they're working. And if you hold your breath back and you're using it very, very slowly, that doesn't prevent the air from exchanging oxygen, carbon dioxide, uh, glucose, all of that stuff. It doesn't prevent it. It still carries on going. So actually you can still have half a lung full of air and yet need to breathe because your oxygen level's too low. Now, plus, and this may be too early to mention this, if the amount of air molecules inside the lungs create a pressure level that is lower than the air molecules outside the body, yes. we get into a state that's called negative pressure. Okay. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Lots of, in fact, all singers, as far as I'm concerned, use negative pressure. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's not wrong. And sometimes we do it. Let's suppose Jeremy wants to interrupt me and I want to stop him. So I keep on and on talking. And can you hear that now? 
I sort of started to sound depleted and I got into that negative pressure. So uh, we can do that with our body, but suppose it's not the right pressure level to keep the vocal folds rolling on that note and in that sort of sound setting that you want. And that's where we need to pay attention. That's where we need to understand that breathing is not just about where are the muscles that do the job, but it's an aerodynamic and mechanical event. I am scribbling furiously here because there's so much to break down there. Are you going to tell me off here? Not at all. No, not at all. Digging right into that. We are really going deep here. But let me just break down some of those things because there's quite a lot packed into that little paragraph that you've just said. That's the long answer. Why do we need breath for singing? (laughs) Okay, cool. Off you go. Right. Um, First of all, let's talk lung volume and lung pressure. Mm. So um, if the air pressure inside your lungs and by the way this is when your vocal folds are open so that there's a free passage in and out when the air pressure in your lungs equals the air pressure outside in the atmosphere whatever atmosphere you're in then you are in equilibrium when we breathe passively which is you know day-to-day breathing when you're not talking you're not doing anything you're just relaxing and chilling um, then you go slightly above that equilibrium. So you breathe in and you very slightly overpressurize so that you can get oxygen in and start that gaseous exchange. And then you breathe out and you go slightly below that equilibrium and you just repeat that thousands of times a day. It's about 24,000 times a day. And the thing about that, and probably some of you will have heard this, well, the diaphragm works automatically because we breathe in our sleep. Therefore, we don't need to think about breathing. We don't need to control the breath. And and in passive breathing, certainly I would agree with that. Mm. However, we also do active breathing. Active breathing is when you're talking, and in fact, we're doing it now. Mm. What tends to happen with active breathing is that pattern gets disrupted. So in passive breathing, the in-breath and the out-breath are approximately the same level, the same length. Um, In active breathing, you tend to breathe in slightly faster, you take in a breath more quickly, and you also take a slightly higher level of breath. And then you extend the out-breath because you're speaking. And remember that when you speak, the vocal folds interrupt the airflow. Absolutely. And there might be some words that you really want to emphasise, in which case you'll use a bit more breath. And of course, as we know, there are some consonants like um, shh and f, which use more breath, and other consonants in which we stop the breath and then release it like b and t. So that we need to be really flexible with that breathing system. Now you go into singing, which is actually a more extended version of speaking, and the Mm. pattern gets disrupted even further. The, The interesting thing about singing, particularly singing music that has been written by somebody else, is they have already decided what the rhythm is. That you're going to do. Mm. And usually with singing, there is extended sound and very short time, a very short time to breathe in. So you get a very fast in-breath and a very extended out-breath. And it's depending what genre you sing in. If you're singing classical Bellini arias, those phrases are extremely extended. If you're singing rap, those phrases are really extended, which is a really interesting one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you're singing pop in general, bubblegum pop, the phrases are normally quite short. Yeah, or Billie Eilish song, then yeah. maybe you, you wouldn't need a high amount of breath in the body. Yeah. 
might be much more uh, like the breath you would use when you're speaking. Yeah. So going back to um, lung pressure, what will happen when you're speaking and even more when you're singing is that you will take a larger amount in and you'll take it in faster. And that will overpressurize the system quite a lot. This is not a bad thing. In fact, you can do it now while you're listening to us is just take a breath in and hold it. It doesn't even have to be a big breath, but you have already overpressurized the system and it just depends how much overpressure you want. Then you start to sing. You've got an overpressurized system, so mostly you are controlling the out-breath slightly because you, you're basically working with too much air, as it were. And then as you go through the phrase, particularly if it's a long one, you hit equilibrium and then you carry on phonating. You carry on singing or speaking and you're going into negative pressure. Again, not a bad thing. Now, there are ways that we can control that. And when we move on to talking about how do we control the breath in sustain mode, we can talk about how we can adjust the, um, if you like, the size of the cavity as we're breathing out, uh, either by using the ribcage or by using the abdominal wall. Yeah. And all of that, you know, because if you think about you've got um, the same amount of air molecules in um, a large container and then the same amount of molecules as that in a smaller container one of them is going to be more tightly packed and therefore you have higher pressure yeah does that make sense people i hope it does yes science friends do not kill me for my um simplification now let's talk diaphragm let's talk diaphragm Okay. So um, the diaphragm has a complete mind of its own. It doesn't behave in any way that it should. And uh, it's a, a it's an animal, basically. You didn't tell me you were going to say this. No, because it's all untrue. No, I've absolutely <laughs> no idea where you're going with it. I think what, what we'd like to say, and I know that, you know, other singing pedagogues will be with us, is that so often one hears... Breathe from your diaphragm. Yeah. Yeah, well, you will be breathing from your diaphragm, even if you think you're only breathing from your ribs because you can't function without your diaphragm. Um, I think we're all on the same page now that the diaphragm sits inside the rib cage, And in fact, it never comes out of the rib cage; It just sits in there. Even when it's depressed to its lowest point, it still doesn't come outside the rib cage. Um, so I'm going to just talk you through where the diaphragm sits So if you feel down your breastbone, down the sternum... Both podcasters are now prodding themselves in the breastbone. Absolutely, yes. Not each other's, just our own. Um, And you get to the bottom point of the breastbone, and it's a very slightly tender point there called the xiphoid process. And that's the front. Diaphragm's joined on there at the front. That's the centre of the front, and it's joined on inside the xiphoid process. And then if you feel with your fingers round, out and down, round the... the, um, front of the of your ribs the diaphragm is attached on the inside of your ribs as you uh, run run your fingers down and round the whole rib cage it's attached on the inside of the bottom of those ribs but it sits right upwards so it actually ascends from those points inwards the diaphragm is also a very interesting set of muscles and, and a tendon um, the thing about a muscle is that it it contracts in the direction it lies. So if a muscle lies horizontally, it's going to contract horizontally. If a muscle lies vertically, it's going to contract vertically. It can't contract any other way because all that happens is the muscle fibres, my favourite word, interdigitate. They're like fingers that link and therefore making the muscle shorter. The thing about the diaphragm is you can't have a muscle that goes vertically 
because there's there's bits and pieces in the way. You know, your liver's in the way, your intestines are in the way. So you need a structure that will pull the whole bottom of the lungs downwards, but it can't be vertical. So what you end up with is a parachute-shaped set of muscles. They sort of curve up and in. And when they all those muscle fibres contract, they sort of pull outwards and down. And right in the centre is a big sheet of tendon. And that is just pulled straight down by that action. It's a very unusual setup, but it works. And tendon is firmer than muscle, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Now, uh, we should just talk about the, where the diaphragm's joined on at the back, because yeah. you might sometimes hear uh, singers and singing teachers talk about breathing from the back. Mm. Well, the, the back of the diaphragm is actually lower than the front. Mm, there are two, two, I think three, actually, little lines called the crura. C-R-U-R-A, crura. And they join on to the... Lumbar spine. And the last of the thoracic The last vertebra. of the th- so thoracics. The last of the thoracics. And it's quite quite a nice way to feel that opening in the back is if you... Um, sort of take the pose of a child, the yoga pose, then the, you know, the front of the belly can't expand that much and you really have to feel that expansion around the back. I don't know yoga, so what's the pose of the child? Well, um, you are on your hands and knees initially and then you lean. Oh, gosh, it's really, I'm not a yoga teacher. (laughs) And then you kind of uh, lean back onto your heels but extending your spine. And then you can, you have your hands by your side. That's the pose of a child. Okay, so you're sort of sitting on your haunches, but leaning forwards and flatter. Yeah, you could also do it if you were sitting on a chair and you just leaned forward onto your okay. the top of your legs. So you're isolating the front that it doesn't yeah. move and then therefore the back can move. Um, if you want an image of the diaphragm in your head, think of a parachute, um, which obviously is, is sort of dome-shaped, but then tip it backwards slightly so that the back of the diaphragm is slightly lower than the front and then run a couple of strings down from the back and that's pretty much the shape of the diaphragm. Nice one. Okay. Um, Oh, now, here's here's an interesting thought. The diaphragm is pretty much known as a muscle of inspiration. It it contracts when you breathe in. Well, I was just going to go there. But it is Can also... Can we support with our diaphragm? Okay, okay. This is a really interesting one. Can you support with the diaphragm? The answer is mostly no, not in the way that people think, but occasionally yes. And the reason is that the muscle, the diaphragm is also a muscle of inspiration and expiration in certain circumstances. And that's a really weird one. Yeah. Can I say a bit more about that? So you will read that the diaphragm is only a muscle of inspiration. And that is, you know, 99.5 correct. But we do know that if you take in a large volume of air and you've got a, you know, a a big phrase coming up or, or you want to sort of conserve some air in some way, that you can keep the diaphragm on as you start singing and it kind of acts as a break for the beginning of the outbreath because what we don't want is for the diaphragm to relax immediately and if you can think about that parachute shape that parachute is going to move upwards it's going to balloon upwards and so the base of the lungs will be moved upwards and then we could start having a problem yeah so we do know that singers can do that that the diaphragm can act 
as a break. It's not so much technically a muscle of expiration, but it can stay on. So um, I actually want to do an exercise. I want to talk people through this because this hover is... Hover breath? A, the hover breath. Hover breath. Right. This is something that we did on Sunday uh, with the accreditation group, and it was really fascinating to watch the penny drop. Okay, so this is what I want you to do. First of all, take a breath in and close your vocal folds like you're going to do... Ah, uh, like you're going to do a glottal onset. So you've taken a breath in, you've overpressurized the system, and you've closed your vocal folds, so the breath is building up underneath. It's the beginning of a glottal onset, or it's even the preparation for a cough. Your vocal folds and the your vocal folds are closed, and that's where the air is being controlled. So there's no flow. Now what I want you to do is to take the same amount of air in, but this time keep your vocal folds open. And the, the, I want you to keep the air still. And the question is, what is stopping the air from moving? Because it's not your vocal folds anymore. And you could check. If you're not sure, is my air moving or not? Put a mirror in front of your face or put your hand right close up to your mouth. Because if you are letting air out, then you will feel the warm air on your hand or you'll mist up the mirror. Yeah. So the question really is, what is preventing the air from coming out? Because you've overpressurized the system, so... And there's no muscles in the lungs. Nope. The muscles, uh, the lungs are not muscles at all. They're just basically big rubbery bags. I know I'm going to get grief for that. Yep. <laughs> Let's hope that no pulmonary experts are listening today. Okay. So what is actually stopping you the air from coming out? And the answer is you have got your inspiratory muscle still switched on. It's not actually pulling the air in anymore, but it's not releasing. So you've got the expiratory muscles. You're not using those. They're just help. He- he- you're holding them, if you like. And then you've got the inspiratory muscles held as well. So everything is held. And that means that the breath stops, there is no flow. This is very, very useful exercise to find out how you can actually work your diaphragm on an expiration. Mm. Because you can hold it dead still, as it were, or you can slow the release of the diaphragm down and that will help you control airflow when you have a big lung full and you don't want to blart it out all at once. So singers must be doing that if they do a slow staccato. Yeah. And if they do what we call the hover onset. Yes. The ah, ah. Is also called the simultaneous onset. It's called the glide onset. Mm-hmm. It's called easy. The, the easy onset, mm-hmm. the singer's onset. Basically, uh, the sound doesn't start with a bump and it doesn't start with a breath. This is why we need to talk breath. Yes. So, Jeremy... Why do we feel our abdominal wall move then when we breathe in? If the diaphragm doesn't go down that low, why do we feel it move? Okay. Well, ultimately, you don't have to feel it move. You can hold the um, you can hold your abdominal wall in and still breathe. But what is probably going to happen then is that the rib cage is going to raise a little more, mm. and that's because if you're holding your abdominal wall in. It's going to hold your abdominal contents in, and there's only really one place for them to go, and that's up. So they're going to go up underneath the diaphragm, and it's not going to be able to descend as far. But if you still want to take a deep breath and you're holding everything tight in, what will happen is that your upper chest will go upwards because you're still trying to make the canister, the rib cage, so big that the lungs can fill. 
If I'm thinking about that parachute, though, um, yes. and I'm widening the ribcage, it will stretch the muscle fibres a bit, won't it, for the diaphragm? Where? It must. Where? Yeah, at the sides, surely. Okay. It's like spreading the parachute a bit. But in order to do that, you've got to move the ribs. Yeah. So we're well, still... I'm holding at the front. You're holding at the front. So the only way I can breathe in is by moving the ribs. Is by moving the yeah. ribcage. Yeah, yes. okay. Right, we are on the same we page. We are totally on the same Always page. Always good to know. Yes. This is the, by the way, this is the other interesting thing, which is people tend to think about breathing as being a front area. Mm. And it's a 360 degree area. Absolutely. You know, your diaphragm goes all the way around. The rib cage goes all the way around. You know, you can use those to breathe into the front, into the sides, into the back. There's all sorts of places that you can use. In fact, we often, with our teachers, show them how to use the Hoberman sphere. And maybe there'll be a picture of that in the show notes. I don't know if you can do that, which is um, a lovely little kind of expanding. It's a kid's um, toy. It's a little kid's toy, expanding ball. And we got this idea from the late Mary Beth Dame, mm. who was a big pal of ours and a, a wonderful teacher and particularly good on debunking all sorts of breathing myths. But it's just a wonderful way to help your students visualise the 360 degree breath. Because actually, one of the things I want to talk about, if we go into the next question... Well, hang on. Before we go into the next question, I actually haven't answered yours yet. Oh, all right then. (laughs) Because your question was, why do we feel the abdominal wall move? Yeah. And the answer is, if you want the diaphragm to descend a little lower so that you can get more air in or the air goes in further and you don't want to use the ribcage because that will really encourage you to top up and not deep breathe, then you want to release the abdominal wall to get the abdominal contents out of the way so the diaphragm can contract down further. I've got to say, from my point of view, since we know that the diaphragm is responsible for 80% of you know increasing lung volume, you might as well use it and yeah. not inhibit it by um, pulling in and holding the abdominal wall. Not that the diaphragm won't work at all, but you won't get that that deeper expansion. I, like, also depends on the task. You yes, know, it what, does. what is it that you're singing? Yes, it does. So do you want to go to abdominal release versus rib raising? Yeah, which is best because, you know, we've had lots of questions about this. Uh, a have. lot of people who've trained classically, including myself, uh, have been taught to expand the ribs. And uh, I had one teacher who said, no, I don't want to see your stomach moving. That's wrong, wrong, wrong. So I became very good at doing a little kind of sniffing exercise, which, of course, you won't be able to see, but I'm going to do three or four sniffs in. Really feeling that expansion of the ribs. Okay, let me just describe that because that's a very interesting movement. Oh, I was so good at expanding, I was. Gillian has her fists on the side of her ribcage, the bottom side of the ribcage. And when she sniffs each time, she sniffs in in sequence, so there's no release between them. So I'm topping up. You are topping up four Mm. times. And each time what happened was that uh, Gillian's, the ribcage kicked Gillian's fists outwards. And then you hold them. You hold the ribcage there. I mean, interestingly, it's already affecting my voice because I just cannot get enough airflow if I keep on holding the ribcage. I can't get enough airflow to make my voice work. To be fair, my old classical teacher, the other half of the exercise was this. (laughs) 
Okay, so it's the reverse. It's breathing out. Yeah. yeah. So and um, releasing that. Uh, but the idea was kind of to keep the rib cage buoyant. Um, and uh, obviously, when I did that, there was quite a lot of movement in my abdominal wall as I was breathing out. Mm-hmm. So um, even so, uh, it's quite a hoik to, to keep those ribs in position, isn't it? Well, let's and, let's talk about this. Yeah, let's talk about this. Because We've morphed now. Are we talking rib raising, as in rib reserve, or what? What are we talking okay, about? Okay, rewind, because there may be people who have never heard of rib reserve. Mm. And rib reserve is basically raising the sides, particularly the sides of the rib cage, but occasionally the upper upper part as well, and holding it there mm. while you sing. So you do that on the in breath. And then you hold the rib cage out while you sing. And that was a technique, I don't know whether it's still taught, it probably is, but that was a technique that was taught a lot when I was at college, which is 30 years ago. Um, And the question then is, because often with these exercises, there is always something useful in the exercise, whether it's completely useful is another matter. But the question is, what is the useful bit of rib reserve? What are you doing when you're holding your ribs open? Uh, answers on a postcard, and we'll tell you next week. No, I lie. Um, what happens when you're holding the ribcage open is that you are keeping the lung volume big. You're mm. keeping it all expanded. Now, if you start to sing, you're using the air, and therefore you're using the air molecules. And as you go on through your phrase, you actually use air, more and more air, air molecules, and there are less and less in your lungs. So you're going to lower the pressure yes. inside the lungs, you aren't you? Are. Mm. Yeah. And the difficulty, if you like, is it's fine to, to do the rib raising bit at the very beginning of the sound because you are overpressurized already. Mm. But as you carry on through the phrase, you become equalized pressure and then you start to lose pressure. Uh, because you're using the using the air molecules, they're coming out. But if you're still holding that rib canister open, that pressure is going to go down a lot. Now, if you want to keep a steady stream of air going to your vocal folds to keep the tone, to keep the volume, to keep the sound, you have to make that canister smaller. At some point. Because making the canister smaller will keep, it'll maintain the pressure inside the lungs. Remember that the um, air molecules are leaving, so you're getting less of them in there. So in order to keep the pressure, you have to make the canister smaller. If you are holding your ribs out right to the end of the phrase, you can't do that. The only thing that you can do is work extremely hard with your abdominal wall to get the pressure up. So what you're doing then is you're pushing the bottom of the canister up. Mm, That's very nice. Um, And I, I can see that before we understood more about the system, not only the muscular interactions, but as Jeremy's just been saying, we've got two, we've got two cavities and mm. they interact on each other to help control and manage the pressure. Okay, which is, what are the two cavities? The two cavities are the abdominal cavity yep. and the lung cavity or the chest cavity. And the diaphragm cuts the two of them in half. Diaphragm is the boundary between them. Yes. And of course, down at the bottom, we have the... Um, the pelvic floor. So we, we have another boundary there uh, between the abdominal cavity and the pelvic cavity. Yeah, that's a bit of a red herring in this conversation. In this context. Yeah. So what I wanted to say is that I can understand, you know, in traditional um, pedagogical practice before we really knew about the, these interactions, 
that if we wanted to sustain the breath, a singing teacher looking at their student would want them to keep the ribs up so that they could retain the breath and make it sustain for a long time. Ironically, um, it's going to do it's going to do the opposite. Unfortunately, we do not have an aqua lung yes. in the body, and therefore, as Jeremy said, we start to get depleted, uh, and it can cause problems. So the answer, if you like, is if you want to do the rib raising thing, which will, by rib raising, you are essentially lowering the pressure inside the lungs. And at the beginning of a phrase, that might be a good idea, might not, depends what you're doing. But the one thing that you do need to do as the phrase goes on is to release that rib raising. And to make the canister smaller, you need to see those ribs coming down to maintain the pressure. Mm. In fact, I would say allow them to come down yep. rather than squeeze. Yep. Uh, you'd only want to squeeze if you were really trying to wring out the very, very end of a phrase, maybe for expressive purposes. And we are talking what's the task, mm. as usual. Mm. If, the, if your task is to... You, your vocal folds need a fine stream of air and a finely controlled stream of air, then you very well may use rib reserve and abdominal wall movement in combination, certainly to begin with. Mm. If you are doing something where the vocal folds need quite a strong stream of air, or you're doing something breathy, or you're doing something belty... Or just very short phrases. Short phrases, then you don't need the rib reserve thing. It's For me, it's very much a classical thing. Mm. It could be counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's talk about, because we're still talking, you know, initially about um, getting the breath in, but we've talked a little bit about how we control the breath out, which obviously is super important. Um, Abdominal release. Now, this is associated with a a breathing technique which uh, people are very familiar with in the UK and Australia and in the rest of the EU, which is the accent method breathing. Yes. Smith technique. Yeah. Svent Smith. Yeah, which uh, came originally from uh, Denmark. Yes. And it was used a lot by clinicians and it has been um, taken into the pedagogical community, I think, with great success. I mean, I certainly personally use it a lot and find it very helpful. Um, It uses uh, a lot of rhythmic movements, uh, generally with active SOVT, so things like voiced fricatives, and also the unvoiced fricatives, those sounds, which all all of the fricatives require an out-breath, don't they? And often the accent method is taught initially with quite an active abdominal movement in. It's quite an active pull-in. Yeah. Now then, accent method uh, fiends, if you think that that's incorrect and I've misrepresented the way that um, you teach it, do do let us know. Before we go any further with the um, accent method description, I want to ask a question. Mm-hmm. What the hell is the question? Is it about rhythm? No, it's about direction. Oh, why are we pushing on the diaphragm? What's happening to the air if we're going to pull in the abdominal wall? Which direction is it heading in? Is it going up or down? Yeah. Just think about it, folks. 
In a way, this is the biggest difference between rib reserve and accent method breathing. If you think about rib reserve, the basic premise of rib reserve is to keep airflow away from the vocal folds. You are keeping the pressure low or lower. The thing about accent method is you're getting airflow to move towards the vocal folds, so you're maintaining a pressure that can be slightly higher. The two are sort of opposites, and if you want to balance them, you have to know that. Yeah, I think that's quite a nice description because often what happens, I mean, if you work with someone who's maybe uh, absorbed the idea that they need to expand everything and then kind of hold to control. Mm. I mean, very typically that might be an avocational um, choral singer. Mm. And then they, they come to you for lessons or, you, you know, maybe kids who work in a, in a group and they've been told, take a big breath, let me see you take a big breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll tend to lift the chest, that if you show them how to, you know, pull in a little with the abdominal wall on the out-breath, it seems counterintuitive, which is, well, why would I be pushing uh, or sending air out of the body when my objective is to control? Well, the answer to that is it's not just... um, the breathing system that controls the breath, it is also the vocal folds because phonation is interrupted airflow. Now, for me, the magic of the accent method approach is it builds that relationship. It builds the coordination between the breathing system, particularly with the abdominal wall, in which we can actually fine-tune movements. It actually builds that connection between the abdominal wall, the airflow, and the vocal fold vibration. And not only that, it uses rhythm. Mm. And what do we do in singing? We use rhythm. We use rhythm. Yes. So I have to say, hand on heart, that's why I'm very fond of the accent method approach. And I think it works really well. I don't know whether this is just people that I've worked with um, or people who have arrived in my studio. There seems to be a part of the accent method breathing that is overlooked. And I actually think it's the most important bit which is letting go when you breathe in. Because people talk a lot about the movement when you're phonating, when you're speaking, when you're singing. They talk about a lot, a lot about the movement in. Mm. But actually, for me, the most important bit is letting those muscles go and allowing it to move out. And that means the diaphragm can contract down further and get more air in or a deeper, deeper breath. Isn't this what Janice Chapman calls the splat? Singers, please loosen abdominal tension. That's the one. Yeah. Very, very useful because... So many people struggle to get breath in. And, you know, there are a lot of people who come for singing lessons going, I really need some breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. And honestly, half of them just need to let go of the abdominal wall so they can actually get the air in in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about watch points that we've come across with people who've um, learned accent method or um, other approaches that derive, let's say, from the accent method approach which is that they've learned to do all these lovely buzzing sounds or maybe they've been, you know, bubbling in water or something like that and doing uh, abdominal pull-in to build that connection. And then what happens is they start to pump the breath. Mm. So every time they start a phrase, even though they're already overpressured, not only is the diaphragm relaxing uh, as we start to breathe out, start to use expiration, But we're also pushing. We're pushing on that upper canister. Now, we don't need to do that because if we have sufficient air 
in the lungs to sing the beginning of the phrase or maybe even the first three or four notes of the phrase, the last thing we want to do is pull in. Mm. I also think the where uh, the action is, if you like, where you do the pull in, the where, what does that mean? No, I was just thinking where the action is. (laughs) Yeah, where where the action is, folks. It's not, you do the release. I teach people to release in the, the, you know, the center of the abdominal wall where the, where the, um, the tummy button is, the belly button is. But I teach people to feel the pull in lower down. So you need your thumbs over your belly button and then kind of make a triangle with the hands uh, going lower down and you feel that little pull in. So, you know, we are, it is kind of in the region of the groin and you need to be quite careful in the way that you teach that to other people. This makes sense when you see um, on anatomy drawings or, or mm. apps the, the four lots of muscles that form the abdominal wall. And these muscles are considered muscles of expiration. So the diaphragm isn't a muscle of expiration. Therefore, we don't actually support with the diaphragm. Yes. But we have these muscles of expiration that help us control and slightly pressurise the air if we need to. Yeah. And the, the really key bit is if you go to the very deepest layer, which is a wraparound layer, it's like a corset, there's a gap in it, which is below the navel. There's actually a gap in the muscle. And then the second deepest layer, which is the uh, abdominus rectus, it's the six-pack, slots in. Uh, mostly it's in front of the um, bottom layer, but right at that gap, it slots in and through and goes underneath it. And that gap's quite low down, it's isn't it? It's quite low down. Yeah. That's the best place to feel the movements. And the other muscles, because we have uh, what are called the internal and external oblique muscles. Yeah. I mean, you know, do go and look them up and you'll see that the muscle fibres run in different directions. Yep. Um, these muscles also slot in down there. So when we do that little pull in with the transverse abdominus, mm. which is the, the body belt, if you like, we get a chain reaction with all of those muscles. Mm. And I think this is the beauty of actually feeling that little bit of a pull in down there. And it's actually what's good about it is that it's slightly more subtle. So it feels like you have more control mm. over it. Um, sometimes when you're first learning accent method breathing techniques, you do them really quite hard and quite fast. And then try and transfer that into the singing and you end up overpressurizing at the very beginning just in the vocal folds. Yeah, and you sometimes with those people you get a lot of pushing the stomach out mm. and it's not really about that. It's about release. And remember we said that breathing is a 360 degree event. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. So, okay, right. Next question. We're, so, we're, we're, we're getting close. We're getting close to the end of the list. We talked a little bit about how we've got... Um, Two cavities, the abdominal cavity and the chest cavity, and how we can get the one to act on the other. And we've talked about how the vocal folds also help us control the flow by opening and closing. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we need to go any further with that at the nope, moment. We I'll, might come to it later. I want to go to timing. You want to talk t- about timing of the in-breath. Timing of the in-breath. Do you know what? I think this is one of the most important things that we need to pay attention to as teachers, and we don't always notice it. And there's, there's this, and again, there's a sort of myth, you know, we're on myth-busting day today. There's a myth that you sing to the end of the phrase... Um, and then you take a breath and then you start the phrase again. And it's a really interesting one because so many 
and I have to say it's particularly classical singers that I've worked with, because they are taught very strongly that you must sing exactly what the composer wrote and you must sing full value and you must resonate to the very end of the last note, that what they do is they res- in a, in a four-beat note, they resonate to the very end of three and three-quarter beats and then they try and snatch a breath to start absolutely on the beat again. There is so much wrong with this, and I just want to break it down. There's no time for that wonderful splat. Nope, not at all. Okay, that's the first thing, is you simply do not have time to release. All you will do is a very... Well, you you have two options, basically. You have the snatch breath, or what I call the Wagner suck, which is... Which is really, really trying to get in as much as possible, as fast as possible. So that's um, not a good idea. No, you can do top-ups. Top-ups are okay, but we're not talking about this at present. But not all the time. Mm. So the second thing is, let's assume that the word that you're singing on the beginning of the next phrase is strong. The word strong. The interesting thing about timing is in order for you to sing in time... The vowel has to come on the beat. By the way, this is a golden rule if I've never said this before. If you want to sing in time, put the vowel on the beat. If the vowel is on the beat, that means the consonant needs to come before the beat. If you're singing jazz and you want to backphrase, you can mess about with that. Absolutely. So if the vowel, if the consonant needs to come before the beat, how many consonants are there on the word strong? And the answer is three. There's an S, a T and an R. And you've got... Uh, two unvoiced consonants and a voiced consonant. And one of them, by the way, that needs more breath. Yes. Because it's a fricative. So in terms of timing, you've got to start that word quite a lot before the beat. Mm. And if you've got to start that word before the beat, you've got to end the previous word early. And if you need to breathe between the two, you need to end it quite a lot earlier. And by the way, if you are resonating right to the end of the note you need a microsecond for your vocal folds to stop before you can even breathe in. It's one of the reasons why sometimes on recordings when, um, and I have to say, I think it's particularly sopranos. What? Yes, I'm sorry. Um, it's the one, those are the ones that I hear. Uh, they That's because you only listen to sopranos. Well, it could be. Um, I love my sopranos. He loves top notes. Yeah. Um, I'm a failed soprano, obviously. Anyway. What I tend to hear is that they're resonating to as long as they can on whatever the last note is, and then they try and snatch a breath in and start the new phrase. And what you hear is it's almost like a glitch. It's really subtle, but you hear it, and it's because the vocal folds have been vibrating and resonating and doing their thing, and the singer hasn't given them enough time to stop doing that before they try and open the vocal folds and breathe in. And it's yes. really interesting. This is all about timing. And if you like, it's a it's a sort of unwritten law in people's heads that actually really needs to be wrapped up beautifully and burned because it is useless for singing, which is I must go to the very end of the note. No, cut the note short. Much more important that we hear what's coming next. Yeah, I want to say something that is also relevant to MDs as well as working maybe with less experienced singers or perhaps singers who've run into trouble. What often happens is that, you know, let's suppose you have a play into a a song and your student is listening to you play if you're in there in person or listening to the backing track and they're listening and they're counting and they're waiting for their entry and they've got all the beats and then they go and then they sing. 
We see that all the time. Yeah. We see it all the time. Now, I have to say, choral conductors, you're the worst culprits. Because, Why? Well, because? because you want to see everybody breathe in. And how do you bring your singers in? You lift your arms really easily, really clearly, and everybody goes... <gasps> and you do it on the upbeat. And you do it on the upbeat. But what if they're going to sing Va Pensiero? Yeah. With what? those long, long phrases? Or what if they're going to come in really quietly? Doing that sort of snatch last beat, last beat rhythm breath is not a good idea because for the same reason, which is you take that fast in-breath, it takes a second, fraction of a second, for your vocal folds to settle down before you actually fernate. Yeah. Um, you know, every time we've done a, a musical director's training course, which we haven't done for a while, you know, due to the pandemic, uh, that is always mind officially blown yes. that moment that one thing changes people's lives that they that a good conductor will have another indicator before that upbeat where they're guiding the singers as to when they need to breathe and that's something actually that every musical director every choir director should be practicing with their singers mm -hmm. finding out where where does their singer need to breathe so for instance you might be indicating the beat with one hand and you might indicate a two beat up breath with the other i just want to pick up on what you said about giving time for the vocal folds to come together sure there's a kind of a rise time and it relates to the Bernoulli idea so that you breathe out. And of course, we breathe in and out passively all day without actually making sound, without phonating. Mm. But there's a moment when we are getting ready to speak or sing when the vocal folds, the, the correct term is they approximate, they come closer together. And if you've ever done that little thing with the two pieces of paper and Bernoulli, you bring the pieces of paper closer together, you blow between them, and hey presto, they come together. Yeah. That's a tiny rise time. If we don't allow for that rise time, if we take that, you know, that breath very fast, particularly if we uh, were we had run out of breath in the previous phrase, then often that's what causes a breathy voice and um uncontrolled, unsustained sound. Yeah. So timing of the in-breath. There's something else about timing of the in-breath that I just want to highlight, and that sometimes comes from the singer themselves, which is they want to sing in rhythm. Mm. So they want to be really rhythmic about whatever it is, that it is that they're doing. That's because all of you instrumentalists complain about our lack of sense of rhythm. <laughs> well, I'll come to that in a moment, because uh, there is a specific reason for that. Um and it depends on the style as well. But the main thing is, because you want to sing in rhythm, you want an impetus that is in rhythm. And the easiest thing to do is just to take a breath in on the last beat to go... And. And therefore, you have that rhythmic impetus. Now, that's absolutely fine if you are in a square 4-4, four, four, it's a really strong beat, it's a really strong backbeat, whatever it is. If you have something that's a little more lyrical, and you do... Ah, that requires a lot more control. And I'm going to suggest that you don't even take that final beat in breath, that you actually take one early. You take it a beat earlier mm -hmm. and slower. So if you take a breath in slower and earlier, you're actually more in control to do a soft sound, for instance. Mm -hmm. So if I do this... 
Ah, I am in control. I can hover just before that sound comes in or I can just start it. I'm much more in control. And although it might feel that you are less rhythmic, it's much more effective. So next time you pick up a song, play around with where you breathe in relation to the beginning of the phrase. Breathe a beat earlier, breathe two beats earlier, breathe three beats earlier. Yes. And teachers notice that with your students. And remember, one size doesn't fit all. One student may, may be able to breathe in that half beat before they sing and another student may not. Yes. I think we should start to wrap this up. Yeah. And um, we have loads more questions, so we may even do a second one. If you have any questions about breathing that you want us to talk about, please go on to speakpipe.com slash vocal process and record us a question and we will play it on the next podcast. Or just drop us an email, info at vocalprocess.co.uk. We also have a whole load of resources and courses and stuff coming up that we want to highlight because this is such an important topic. Oh, these are going to be great for uh, following up, aren't they? Yes. Um, in the Learning Lounge, we have a couple of things. Uh, I want. Let's start with the Learning Lounge. I mean, the Learning Lounge is enormous now and we're adding to it all the time. So mm. it has well over 500 videos on there now. But the ones that we would point you to are we have... Um, Webinar seventeen. No, it's no. sixteen. No, it's it is sixteen. It is, it is 16. webinar sixteen. Troubleshooting breath. Webinar seventeen is troubleshooting range. What we're doing is we're looking at how how do we purpose this understanding of the breathing mechanism in the context of song. Now, the great thing about the the webinars, because um, there are eighteen of them on the learning lounge is that each one is an hour long, but I've cut it up into sections. So, you know, you've got a five-minute video and they're all labelled so that you know what each video is about. And you can drop in and watch any one of those videos or just sit and watch the whole hour. Mm. Um, and I'll talk about, there's a, a lesson plan, isn't there, which there I wrote is. There is a lesson called plan. Breath Awareness. Yes. And this is a kind of pre-thing that you would do with... Um, you know, uh, young students or beginner students, just to put them in touch. Because often what happens, you know, you could work with someone, for example, who's the CEO of a company. Mm. And you could explain to them about breathing, but they just have no awareness of the physicality of how something moves. Well, and, uh, you you worked with a television presenter, very indeed. famous television yes, presenter. quite who, a while back. Who had that issue. Yeah. And I remember one of the things I talked about was, well, you know, your 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 belly moves out when you breathe in and then you, you pull in your belly when you breathe out. And they said, well, why is it the opposite? Why are you saying it moves out when I'm breathing in? Mm. And I thought, yeah, counterintuitive, yep. eh? Yep. So the, um, the breath awareness is useful for that. It's also great for group work and you can adapt it for working with um, children uh, or adults, you could also use it, you know, maybe with music in different rhythms. Uh, have a play with it. It's quite fun. If you haven't come across one of our lesson plans, it is a fully structured mm, 45 minutes to an yeah. hour and a half mm. uh, lesson that we have given you everything to do in. We've given you the exercises. We've given suggestions about what you can ask, what you can talk about with people, what sort of answers you might give. It's really comprehensive. Um, so if you're looking for something to do with your class, or even you can use them in one-to-one sessions mm, as well, mm. then check out the learning the lesson plans in the Learning Lounge. Uh, the other thing that we want to flag is... Um, 
the SOVT2 course is coming up in November. Yes. And we will put the dates up in the show notes. An excellent um, workshop for understanding about the relationship between pressure and flow and uh, different ways of getting in touch with how we control the breath. If you haven't come across SOVT, and obviously if you listen to this podcast, we have four episodes on SOVT, so hopefully... occluded vocal tract. Semi-occluded vocal tract exercises. And SOVT 2 is coming up in November. You have to have done SOVT 1 before you do SOVT 2, but... SOVT1 is now available online, so you can go and get that immediately. Spend as much time as you like going through that before you come on SOVT2, and we do recommend it. And that pop-up is with Jeremy, me, and with um, Oren Boder yep, who of is the Ravox, cre- and, and the creator of the SOVT... Sing a Straw. Sing a Straw. Yes. So that's coming up in November. In January, and we're looking ahead a little now, the Online Singing Teacher Training Week 1 starts. And that is, if you go and have a, a listen to the previous, um, one of the previous podcasts, which is all about the ziggurat, then you'll understand that it's one of the steps that you take to come onto our accreditation program. Mm. Or you can just take the OSTT one by itself. A few people have. They've come on, they've gone, wow, this is amazing. And, you know, can we come on OSTT two in maybe six months time? So in January, we're doing OSTT one. And then in February, we're doing OSTT two. And all the details we will put on the show notes. And we spend a lot of time in OSTT one one talking about breath management mm. and the breathing mechanism and actually when we get into SOV um SOVT <laughs> listen to me acronyms yeah when we get into OSTT2 we talk about again how we're timing of in-breath and purposing breath and different breath uses for different vocal styles yes and a quick mention for the this is a voice book which we haven't mentioned for ages uh, 99 exercises to play with all sorts of things that you can do. There's quite a lot on breathing and how you control breath. And uh, we're very pleased to find out that um, the book is on Feeney Cave's reading list, The Musical Breath, which is about breath and vocal health. Mm. And we also talk about breath use in different musical genres, don't we? We do. Please let us know if you have any questions or any comments. We love to hear from you. And as always, you can use the SpeakPipe app speakpipe.com slash vocal process to have your voice heard yes we'd love to play on our podcast yeah we'd love to play if you want to do an exercise for us then record that as well we can play that get vocal for us yes we'll see you soon bye 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 this is a voice a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher.